All right. Friends, uh, we are finishing up today our last sermon in our series through the book of Genesis, okay? We're going to start a new series next week on the book of Ephesians. That'll be our next series. But just a reminder for us as to why we're stopping at Genesis chapter 11, we're not finishing the whole book of Genesis, is because from the get-go, we've already committed to not do all of Genesis. We've already done chapters 12 uh, beyond before, but this time around, we just wanted to do the section of the Bible that's often called primeval history, okay? That's pretty much the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 till before Abraham's life, so the first scene in Genesis chapter 11, Okay, which is what our passage is today. It is the first part of Genesis chapter 11. It's also the last scene in primeval history, okay? And it's a pretty popular scene. I think a lot of you have heard the story before, preached, taught, interpreted in many ways, and it's a story called the Tower of Babel. Now, why did I do that whole spiel is because I wanted us to approach the story about the Tower of Babel not as a standalone story to be interpreted in its lonesome. I think the best way for us to really understand what the Tower of Babel is about is by reading it as the last scene of primeval history, reading it as the concluding end of Genesis chapter 1 to 10. It's going to feel like the difference of watching the last episode of a TV show on its own versus watching the last episode of a TV show having already watched the whole series. You know what I mean? You're gonna see connections and themes that you probably wouldn't have seen unless you, you, you watch the whole thing. So let's approach the Tower of Babel with that uh, mode right now. And if the Tower of Babel is seen as the last episode of Genesis 1 to 10, what is the Tower of Babel really about? Well, I think it summarizes for us Mankind's problem ever since Genesis 1 to 10. It the Tower of Babel summarizes for us our problem of over and over and over again wanting to be God. We keep wanting to get up there and take over his throne. We keep trying to take for ourselves certain rights and authorities and characteristics and powers that should belong to God and to God alone. That's a summary, all right? And what Genesis 1-11 teaches us, if anything, is this. If you, if we want to have any kind of hope of peace and shalom on earth, then we gotta escape Babel. We gotta resist this mindset of thinking that the more godlike we are, you see, the more power, the more uh, control, the more glory we have equals to more joy and peace. Primeval history is telling us that that's a cosmic lie, straight from the serpent's tongue, embodied in the Tower of Babel. It's a lie. In fact, that equation, that power, glory, authority, equals happiness, that very equation the Bible presents is actually the source of your suffering. And it's silly, it's foolish to continue down that road. How so? Why? Why is it so dangerous? And if that is true, how can we get away from it? Okay, well, let's dive in. 
This is God's word, taken from Genesis chapter 11, verse 1-9, the last scene of primeval history, the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused all the languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Thus says the Lord. There are three things that I want to point out from this passage about Babel, about the dangers of wanting to play God. The appeal of Babel, the consequences of Babel, and the escape from Babel. Okay? This, those three. The appeal, the consequence, and the escape. Let's talk about the first one. The appeal of Babel. It is appealing. But what this passage starts off saying, it's dangerous. Babel is dangerous. Where do we see that? Well, this is a connection from Genesis 1 to 10 here already in the beginning, in verse 2, in this theme of the east. You guys remember that? As we read Genesis 1 to 10, what does going eastward represented there? Sin, brokenness, rebellion against God. You remember that? When Adam and Eve sinned, where, where were they kicked out of toward? The east, right? When after... Uh, Cain murdered Abel. Where did he run to? The east. And now, here in the opening of this passage, we have people who migrated, entered the scene from where? From the east. A hint of impending trouble. And these people settled down in Shinar. Here's another connection to Genesis 1 to 10. Okay, jog your memories again. Throughout Genesis 1 to 10, what did God tell mankind to do? Did God tell mankind to settle down somewhere? Or did God tell mankind to go and spread his glory throughout the earth and multiply? The second one, right? To go and multiply, spread his glory throughout the earth. You're made in my image. Go, cover the whole earth with my glory. He said that to Adam in Genesis chapter 2. He said that to Noah again in Genesis chapter 9. But instead of these people who come from the east, instead of using their energy to spread out and cover the earth with God's glory, What did they use their energy for? They disobeyed God, and they instead settled down to build a tower to the heavens so that they may accumulate glory for themselves. Come, they said in verse 4, let's settle down here. Let's build a city with a tower so high that its top will reach the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed through all the earth. You see, this is a direct disobedience. And at this point, when we see these two themes, after reading all of Genesis 1 to 10, a careful reader of the Bible will immediately say to themselves at this point, 
here we go again. Here we go again. This is the same old sin that we've seen throughout the series, right? Okay, let's, let's talk about it. What happened in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because they wanted power over ethics. They wanted power over ethics. They wanted power to determine what's right and what's wrong. A power that belonged only to God alone. What happened in Genesis 6? Remember, if you were here for that sermon, mankind participated in sexually deviant behaviors because they thought that somehow these sexually deviant behaviors is going to help them live longer and beat death. They wanted power over life and death, a power that belonged only to God. And now here in Genesis 11, what's happening yet again? Mankind disobeyed God by building a tower to attain what? Glory and fame. Glory and fame that should belong only to God. The same sin over and over and over again throughout primeval history, we keep trying to take things that belong only to God. Adam and Eve wanted to prioritize ethics. Mankind in Genesis 6 wanted to control life and death. And here in Genesis 11, we wanted to monopolize glory. But who wouldn't want those things? Who, who doesn't want that? To have power over ethics? To live forever? And glory? I mean, come on. What else do you want in life? That's, that's everything. Don't you want it? I do. I shouldn't, but I do. It's so tempting. We all want it. We've all fallen to Babel's trap. You can do whatever you want forever and be praised for it. You don't want that? It's so tempting. And we do it all today still. Here's some examples. Have you ever uh, manipulated the narrative of a story just a little bit maybe in order to cover up a mistake that you made? Who here hasn't done that? I have. You know what that is? That's wanting to claim power over ethics. That's wanting power to determine what's right and wrong. That's the same thing Adam and Eve did in the garden. Have you ever claimed the credit for someone else's hard work? Have you ever did something because you know deep inside you just wanted public applause? You know what that is? That's wanting to monopolize glory. That's the same thing the people here in Genesis 11 did. These primeval sins still appeal to us today as much as it did back then to them. And the reason why it's so hard for us to escape Babel, our passage continues to stay, is not only because our flesh desires it, but it's also because our culture is built around it, which, by the way, is another connection to Genesis 1 to 10. Okay. Remember in Genesis 2, what did God tell Adam to do? God told Adam to spread the beautiful culture of Eden so that it may cover the whole earth, right? That's what's often called the cultural command, okay? And ever, ever since sin entered the world in Genesis 3, mankind's been trying to make culture. We still have that desire to produce and create, but yet every culture that we make ever since has never been pure. Remember the city of Cain in Genesis 4? A lot of culture building going on there, but it was all, it was tainted by sin. And now again, in 
the city of Babylon, Genesis 11. There's a lot of cultural advancement here, which is good. Cultural advancement is good. You see cutting-edge furnaces being made to burn bricks thoroughly in verse 3. You got bitumen, which is asphalt, created for mortar by exposing crude oil to air. All these new cultural techniques and advancements are being made, but yet these bricks and mortar, they were used not to glorify God like the cultural mandate was originally meant to do in Genesis 2, but instead it was used to glorify self. And the penultimate cultural artifact in this city is a tower so high, so tall, it's as if the top reached the heavens. Babel, friends, here's a point. Babel is not only in us, it's all around us. The Babylonian equation that says power, control, and glory equals happiness. That equation is not only a seed in us, it's also the very greenhouse we're all growing under. That's why you can't escape it. You cry on Sundays on a worship service, and then you go back to Monday immediately living in this equation again. Why? It's all around us. But you have to get away from it. That's the warning. You have to escape it, okay? Why? Because it will enslave you. Do you remember what else bricks and mortar is known for in the Old Testament? They were the very things that Egypt forced Israel to make in their slavery. Babel will enslave you. Like every idol, this Babylonian equation, power, money, glory equals happiness. That equation, it promises us great things, but they never deliver. And they always end up enslaving us. There's a cost to living our lives upon this Babylonian equation, which leads us to our second point. The consequences of Babel. And it's a high cost, okay? There's a point here that's being made in the original Hebrew that most modern English or Indonesian readers of the Bible wouldn't immediately catch. It's a wordplay, okay? And it sounds like a stretch, I know, but it's not, because Hebrew literature does this all the time. There are three phrases said in verse 3, let us make bricks uh, for stone and build for ourselves. Those three phrases in verse 3 actually echo the word nebal in Hebrew that means foolish, okay? Let us make bricks is elben, for stone is laban, and build for ourselves is nebna. They're all meant to echo the word nebal, which means silly, foolish. It's as if the author's trying to say that living your life according to the Babylonian equation that power, control, glory equals joy and happiness, it's foolish, it's foolish for a few reasons in the text. First, it's foolish because it's going to give you a false sense of self. The Babylonian equation creates a false sense of self. Where do we see that in the text? Look at how differently the Babylonians viewed their tower and how God viewed this tower. It's, it's almost comedic. Okay, go to verse 4. The Babylonian said... Our tower will reach the heavens. Look at it. It's so big. It's so tall. It's so powerful. It's so majestic. It's so mighty. But in verse 5, the Lord was described to be doing what? 
in order to see this tall tower. He had to look at it. He had to come down to see what the children of men are making. It's like, what's that? What's that tiny little thing there? Oh, it's a tower. (laughs) Mankind said, whoa. God said, aw. (laughs) It's cute. Look at that. (laughs) Babel makes you foolish because it gives you a false sense of self-grandeur. Look at the size of my bank account. Look at the size of my business empire. Look at the size of my muscles. Look at the size of my land. Look at the size of my investments. Look at the size of my church. God here is saying, you tiny fool. A false sense of self-grandeur. Second, it gives us false hope. Look at verse 8. After all is said and done, what do you have? What are you left with? You're left with an unfinished tower. It's insufficient. A big part of why we all have this sense of constant, unexplained disappointment in life, no matter how much money you have or don't have, it's there. And you know what I, feel, what I mean. You know why? It's because we are chasing something that bricks and mortar cannot get you. We're using the wrong material to chase the wrong things that never should be ours in the first place. Don't mistake, friends, the life and vigor that comes from immersing yourself in God's glory, maybe at church or in gospel moments throughout the week. Don't mistake that life and vigor that you feel there with the high that comes from attaining personal glory. At face value, they feel the same, okay? Just like how a good night's sleep at face value feel the same as three shots of coffee. But with coffee, you'll be chasing it forever. Nothing against coffee, I love it. I'm chasing that too (laughs) with coffee. But it's it's not sustainable. It's not going to work out. It's a false hope. It'll give you a false sense of glory. It'll give you false hope. Third, Babel is foolish because it's going to make you anger someone you really don't want to anger. Look at verse 7. God there said a phrase that directly echoed the Babylonians. In verse 4, the Babylonians said, Come, let us build a tower for ourselves. And in verse 7, God responds, Come. Let us go down. What's the point? The point here is this. If you come at God, he'll come at you. If you have the audacity to come at God and try to take something that belonged to his, he will come at you. And it's not only him. Let us come down. Who's us there? That's royal talk. That's when kings talk about their army. That's not a fight you'll win. You come at God, he'll come at you. And look how easy it was for God to stop Babel's production. All he did was confuse everyone's language. And just like that, communications broke down, SOPs were confused, KPIs aren't met, right? And the community broke up. 
Which leads us to our fourth consequence of Babel foolishness. Not only will it produce a false sense of self-grandeur, not only will it give you false hope, not only are you going to end up angering someone you don't want to, you don't want to anger, but third, it make, it's foolish because it makes false communities. Babel makes false communities. Look at how the Babylonians were so united at first, right? They all work so well together. They're one voice, right? Accomplish great things for one unified goal of making a name for themselves. But as soon as they could no longer help each other get to the top, what happened? They abandoned ship. They stopped being friends. You ever been in a community that accepted you at first, but then as soon as they considered you no longer added value, they kicked you out? Hmm? That's Babel foolishness. Babel won't give you what you're looking for. The pursuit of self-glory will give you a momentary buzz, enough to make you chase it forever. And in the process, you're going to feel bigger than you actually are, you're going to anger God, and you're going to slowly break your community. You know anyone who's going down that road? You know anyone who's plagued by it? Or, perhaps, an infinitely more important question, do you see marks of Babel in yourself? Because I do. Oh, I do. And we got to resist it. It's in me. It's in you. It's in this church. It's in the city we live in. It's everywhere. But we got to get away from it. How do we get away from it? What's the way out? Let's go to our last point. The escape from Babel. Okay, we've gone this far without actually talking about what the word Babel means. Okay, the word Babel means foolishness. Sorry, it means confusion. Confusion, okay? Foolish confusion. So get this, okay? All of primeval history, I mean, if, you know, you, the whole Bible, and God chooses to write this in the first few chapters. It's pretty important, right? All of Genesis 1 to 10, the first part of 11, ends with this theme, confusion. That's, that's the main problem that we have. Because we've confused ourselves with God, right? That's the first point of confusion that happens. The confusion between the creator and creature distinction. We've confused that. Because of that, we confuse our relationships with each other. Husband and wives now feel the need to hide from each other, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. Human beings now kill each other, Genesis 4 to 6. Father and sons humiliate one another and curse one another, Genesis 9, remember with Noah. And now whole communities break because they can't understand one another, Genesis 11. This vertical and horizontal confusion that, that we see here continues today. The building of Babel might have stopped, okay, because God dispersed them throughout the earth. But, friends, the spirit of Babel, it went with them. The spirit of Babel is as if to say, now lends itself in every culture, in every language, in every tongue, in every people group. People have come to me and asked me, which culture is most closest to, to the culture of God's kingdom? And every culture, wherever you're from, you believe that that culture is the one closest to it. And it's not. It's Babel is everywhere. You can move cities. You can move countries. You'll find Babel there too. It's just contextualized a little bit differently. 
No escape. Is there? Is there an escape route? There is. Thank God that the Bible didn't end in Genesis 11 with the city of Babel. Thank God, as we read in our uh, assurance of pardon today and in our call to worship, that the story of the Bible ends in another city in the book of Revelations. A city whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 10 says. A city in Zephaniah here in our uh, call to worship where everyone will be talking in pure speech and serve God in unity. There's hope. There's an end to Babel foolishness that now plagues our lives and plagues the city that we're in. But the question is still unanswered. What's the escape? What's the way out? How can we get out of Babel and into this new city of God that he promises? How can we, so to speak, transfer citizenships from being citizens of Babel to become the citizens of the city of God. And stick with me here. I'm going to take you to one more rabbit trail that I don't usually do in third points, but you just can't escape it for this passage. The answer of how to make that transfer is actually found in the book of Acts. It's in the book of Acts. Where? Let me ask you. Can you think of another instance in the book of Acts where God came down again. But this time, when he came down, instead of disuniting people by mixing up their languages, God unified people by making them understand each other's languages. What event am I referring to there? The Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. See, a lot of people don't know this, but the Pentecost wasn't a random event that just happened. The Pentecost was God reversing the curse of Babel. The multitude came together, Acts chapter 2 says, and they're bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they're amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and Preselites, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Hearing about the mighty works of God spoken in their own language, reversed Babel, and united all tribes, tongues, and nations into one. We're almost at the answer, okay? We gotta take it one step further. What mighty work of God did they hear preached, specifically here in their own tongue? What message was preached at Pentecost so powerful that it reversed the curse of Babel? Well, let's let's go to Acts chapter two and take a look at it. Acts chapter two, verse 38 Here it is. Peter said, repent and be baptized every single one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What is your Babel? Name it. Put a name to it. The more specific you are about your repentance, 
the more effective it'll be. Give it a name. What is your Babel? For me, it's this church. Are you surprised? Like, <laughs> that's my Babel. Does that mean I have to stop pastoring? No, I don't think so. But I do think, at the very least, it means I have to fight it. I have to resist the appeal of making this babble. Because the second I do so, it's going to give me a false sense of hope. It's going to give me a false sense of self. It's going to enslave me. It's going to test God's wrath. And it's going to start breaking my relationships. That's my babble. What's your babble? Name it, confess it, talk to your friends and spouse later at lunch. And remember, here's, here's a summary. The only way you can fight that babble, you're always going to be tempted by it. The only way you can fight it is not by sheer willpower alone. You're not strong enough. I'm not strong enough. The only way that's going to make you stop making that climb the only thing that's going to make you resist it is knowing that the king you were trying to take over came down himself willingly for you. That's it. The only thing that's going to stop you from making the climb is the gospel that's going to lure your heart to know that the cross of Christ is this king you wanted to take over with your Babel, willingly coming down and giving up his power, laying down his glory for you. That's what's going to help you. That's what's going to make you change. The gospel is not the only thing that's going to stop you from making that climb, but the gospel is also going to be the very thing that unites you with one another. That's the point here. Because the cross of Christ, what you can do now is find another Christian in this room from a totally different age demographic, from a totally different culture, from a totally different language. You can see the other person, okay? And yet both be united by the experience of being saved by the very king that you were both trying to overthrow. I mean, how do you explain that feeling? to someone who doesn't believe it, you know? You can. It's a language of its own. And it unites beyond boundaries. The king you're trying to overthrow with your Babel came on the cross and said, you're forgiven. That's it. Do you believe it? Is it just a thing you hear Sunday mornings? My prayer, friends, is that this gospel vocabulary that groans so eloquently, I know, in your souls, although you may not be able to verbally verbiage it well, it groans in you, Roman says. May that forge your souls with one another. May the meekness of Christ mold your heart as one. And as we behold the gospel, as we lay down our babbles, as we unite as one true community, May this city see an alternate city, an alternate community, an alternate culture 
here. One that's been assembled, not by bricks and mortar, but by the blood of Christ. Will you do that? I pray you will. Let's pray. Father, what a gospel we have. What a good news we've been given throughout the whole Bible, even throughout Genesis 1 to 11. It all points to the cross. It all points to your redemption plan where your son will come, where the king who we will challenge with our towers come down himself onto a cross and forgive us for our rebellion. We didn't need to rob him off his robe. He took it off willingly and died naked on a cross. We didn't need to kick him out of his throne. He came down willingly and lived among us rebels to love us and give us a kind of glory that we could have never attained with our tiny little foolish towers. In him we have glory. In him we are justified. We are right and all of our wrongs have been forgiven. And in him we've beaten death and can now live forever. May the cross of Christ lure our hearts to let go of our silly little towers and pursue him and him alone. May you give this mercy to every believer in this room and those who do not yet know you, Father. May they hear this offer of forgiveness presented to them right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.